In the deep dark, the Aslan are moving, but there is a darker power. There is something behind the claw. Welcome to episode 21 of the Behind the Claw podcast, a show for fans of the classic Traveller RPG. I'm Felbrick Napoleon Herriot, and let's start the show by taking a look in the email vault. Anthony has sent a request that I take a look at the Hivers race when I do a review. Be assured, Anthony, it's on the list, and I know what you mean. They are very interesting. Thanks for writing. Ian has written in too, but he's donned his rules lawyer hat in regard to the hydrographics percentage segment I ran, and I'm going to pretty much read his whole email, as it's awesome. Here goes. The formula for world hydrographic percentage is 2D minus 7 plus atmosphere, not 2D minus 7 plus size. This was a correction applied in the 1981 edition of Book 3. In the Traveller book, in Starter Traveller, and in Book 6, Scouts, although the mistake is still in the World Generation checklist in all of them. However, it is confirmed by official errata. Although a DM-4 is applied for atmosphere 0 and 1, it is still possible for such an atmosphere to result in a hydrographic value of 1 or 2, and, as I mentioned, this would be an ice-capped world. The 1981 edition also adds that, for normal worlds, this will be water. On other worlds with exotic, corrosive or insidious atmospheres, it may instead be other liquids, such as ammonia, or the implication is that non-water surface liquid is allowable and dependent on atmosphere type. Normally the UPP applies to the main world in the habitable zone of a system, and thus it would always assume that water is the primary liquid and is the main source of hydrogen for fuel, as well as making for a better environment. Book 6 Scouts expands the world generation to other planets in the system. Worlds outside the habitable zone may not have so much liquid. There is a further DM of minus 2 on hydrographic percentage applied for outer zone planets and inner zone planets always have a hydrographic of zero. It seems unlikely that heavy metals can survive as liquid seas on hot planets, as this also requires a certain pressure as well as a temperature. More likely they'll quickly become vapour or just seep into the surface, or the entire planet's surface is molten and covered in constant volcanic activity. See lava planets. Alternatives to water would be gases that liquefy on very cold planets or under high pressure, such as ammonia, chlorine or methane. Double Adventure 2A, Across the Bright Face, is set on a tidal locked vacuum world, which has one side continuously facing the star and is very hot, It does consider high-temperature zero-pressure phenomena, such as gas clouds and liquid pools made of heavy metals. But the world is hydrographic zero. Book 6 maps out the Terra system, and Venus is listed with a hydrographic of zero, but otherwise the atmosphere B, corrosive, allows for non-water surface liquid. Ian, that was great. Not only correcting me, but adding so much more information. I wasn't aware that pressure would be needed to keep metals liquid. I'm rather stuck in my Earth mindset, I guess, in that regard. Thanks for putting me straight. But now I have to worry about this errata you've mentioned. Rob has also been in touch to say he's enjoying the show and that it's inspired him to start rebuilding his collection, and that he's planning to run a game at a convention coming up. 
Yes, that's what it's all about, people. Spreading the good news of Traveller. Thanks to everyone who wrote in. It is the feedback that keeps me going. Thanks a lot. I have no idea. So, computer, what can you tell me about this place? This is the My Galaxy segment, where I tell you about a planet in the Tassesso subsector. A map and planetary UPPs are available on the podcast's website at behindtheclaw.blogspot.co.uk. The planet Omakasus is nothing special to look at. From space, it appears as a dull brown ball without atmosphere or oceans, nothing to appeal to the casual visitor. A community of 50,000 souls survive on the surface under domes built many centuries ago. The count of the population is maintained at exactly 50,000, or as close to that as is possible for the government to maintain. The natural resources of the planet are extremely limited, and if the population goes above 50,000 threshold, then food, water and other necessities become strained. There are strict immigration rules, with emigration being positively encouraged. Visitors are required to bring their own resources with them. This includes water, air and food, with amounts being deposited on entrance to the domes in amounts suitable to maintain the individual for the duration of their stay. Failure to leave on schedule is a serious crime, as you're seen as stealing the precious life-maintaining resources. The only punishment for this is death and confiscation of everything. The population is split between seven domes on the surface and the excavated regions beneath each. They're not connected to each other except by surface roads along which frequent cargo and people haulers travel. There is no significant trade to or from the planet, as they do not produce anything in abundance to sell, and their requirements are always for low-value cargoes, such as water and food. Small traders may be able to turn a profit by hauling such cargoes to the planet. The starport has very limited facilities, and the only fuel held there is unrefined. But travellers are strongly advised to check for the availability of fuel on the surface before landing, as it is often unavailable, as the resource can sometimes be funnelled into making potable water. There is little to attract the visitor, except perhaps the annual breeding games, in which male and female participants engage in sporting events, the winners of which are presented with birth certificates that allow the bearer to have a child. The events are the social highlight and run for weeks, with participants having to compete in many differing events before getting to the finals. Events include such things as sprinting across a dome while pursued by their competitors wielding batons as weapons, wrestling, pole fighting, where competitors are placed on a three-inch wide horizontal pole and the last one left in place wins, with the losers being pushed, punched or kicked from their perch. Each year, these games cause a few deaths, which, according to the government, means that a few more of the competitors are able to be issued with birth certificates. There is nothing else of interest on the planet. No, no, no way. The way I heard it is that he was shipping arms, guns, you know, taking them straight in, under the navvy's nose. It's time for another story seed. This seed is for players that are running their own ship and taking occasional passengers. Here's the premise. A passenger books a passage on a ship via the TAS computer system. This should not be the first passenger to do that and to use that system to get onto the ship. But this booking triggers a visit from the local TAS representative. 
the Tasci will meet with the captain to discuss a reduction in the rates charged for TAS passengers. The guy is very pushy and has a lot of financial clout. His main points being, you have to take TAS passengers at TAS rates and be paid by TAS. Sign up to the TAS agreement to always take TAS passengers when available. You will bump non-TAS passengers in preference for TAS passengers. You'll nearly always have passengers, of course, and failure to agree to this will blacklist your ship. The rates being offered by the TAS representative are such that they will barely allow you to turn a profit on the passenger, and the referee should make sure that this is likely to make whole trips loss-making. This deal should not be seen as a good thing by the players. The threatened blacklisting is a serious business. It's also completely legal. To be blacklisted means that the captain of the ship might have his TAS membership revoked. The TAS booking system will never offer any passenger lists to the ship, and as their system is used by most people trying to book trips, even those without TAS membership, this could cause passenger options to dry up pretty much completely. The TAS also run a cargo handler union, so a blacklisted ship is likely to find cargo turnaround times doubled, tripled, or extra fees being charged. The players have a few ways they can potentially deal with this situation, including, but not limited to, bribing the TAS representative, blackmailing the TAS representative, appeal the blacklisting through TAS channels, or even to take the deal. If the players choose to try and blackmail him, they'll find plenty of material. They'll find that he lives exceptionally well for an administrator, indicating that he has a larger income than you'd expect. He's in fact taking graph from every service at the starport, and monthly payments from a number of ship's captains. When he's not on official business, he makes a lot of secretive meetings where brown envelopes get passed under the table. Anyone putting moves onto him that give him time to react will find that his money gives him access to a lot of protective muscle that might even break a few bones at his request. No, sir, you may not dock here. What the hell? I just made three jumps to get here. Without Permit 7C, you may not dock. Now move out to the holding line at 6,000 kilometres. This is the Rules Talk segment, where I take a look at some aspect of the classic Traveller rules or canon. Today I thought I'd take a quick look into the Traveller nobility. Right from book one, where it describes social standing, I garnered a little insight. Here's a quote from the rules. The social standing characteristic shows relative position within society for the individual. Those with social standing of B+, 11 or greater, are considered to be noble and may assume their family's hereditary title. Noble titles are commonly used, even if the individual is not engaged in a local government. At the discretion of the referee, a world may be generated, see worlds, and the noble may have some ancestral lands or fiefs on it. After reading that, it occurred to me that I may have been playing such high ranks incorrectly, or at least not as intended. My assumption has always been that the noble ranks were recognised imperium-wide. Now that I've reread that opening, I realise that perhaps they only apply on the homeworld of the character. So the king of a grubby little low-tech country may have a high social standing at home, but what consideration and weight would that garner from an immigration official in a sector capital? With every world having its own nobles, it could be a fact 
that the title means nothing once you break atmosphere. I know that the description of social standing in Book 1 says, the social class and level of society from which the character comes. It clearly does not state that it relates to an imperial rank. This reasoning of a homeworld-only social status is backed up in the Book 3, where it states, nobility have hereditary titles and high standing in their home communities. That confirms my assumptions, held for decades, are all wrong. This does make for some interesting possibilities, though, when the high-born noble travels between worlds. Their honoured dignity won't be a commodity once they cross the vacuum. How will they handle that? What about officials on other worlds? With space travel being expensive, surely half the passengers on a liner are going to claim nobility from one world or another, and there's not going to be any way of meaningfully confirming that rank. When a duke sits next to a knight, who do the waiting staff serve first? Is there some imperial serving standard? If there is, it surely can't be based on unconfirmed ranks, as any vagabond could claim such a background. Perhaps tables are always served clockwise, from the bow of the ship, or the direction the sun rises, so that individuals don't matter, unless they race to get to the seat first. And finally, looking into Book 5, Highguard, I note that having a higher social standing grants the PC a better chance of command duty, and bonuses in a few other places. But as the Navy is split into three tiers, one of which being the local system Navy, I suggest that the social standing bonuses would only apply there, and not in the subsector or in the Imperial fleets. Ah, damn piece of junk! Who bought this anyway? <clears throat> no, no, don't you dare say it was me. Today's review is of a free-to-download PDF traveller magazine called Freelance Traveller. This magazine is up to 70 issues now, and this review is of issue 1 from November 2009. The issue is 28 pages and opens with a glorious full-colour spaceship on the cover that bodes well for what's inside. The first article is a review of Mongoose's Aslan module, and then it swiftly moves on to a brilliant article, apparently the first of a series that lays out short story seeds and gives each six plot twists that you can roll for when you need a quick adventure. This seems rather like my own format for story seeds, and so it's not a surprise to find that I like what I'm seeing. There are some really good ideas here. Another review, this time a bit of a hatchet job, and it's on to an article presenting new rules for populating a newly discovered world. It's only a couple of pages long, but I found the ideas pretty suggestive to the imagination. The next short article presents a new, or at least new to me, handgun. A laser revolver. It sounds weird, but a second read through it, and I've come to like this idea. It's a neat twist on the laser concept. And then comes another hatchet review, which is quickly followed by a few pages of fiction. It's in the form of an officer's log and has a few ideas in it to inspire. Then comes the magazine's main article, which presents a brand new intelligent race. It's presented in a form that looks like a trimmed-down version of the standard basic Traveller Alien module presentation. We get introduction, physiology, culture and character creation tables, including race-specific careers. It's a pretty good article and I soaked it up. So that's it, but what did I think? I really liked it. In a lot of ways, it's like the magazine was written just for me. It's almost exactly what 
I would like to produce. Anyway, you can download this wonderful magazine from www.freelancetraveller.com. Did you hear that? What the hell do you think it is? Is it dangerous? This is the Creature Catalogue, where I tell you about one of the alien creatures that can be found in and around the Imperium. The Kuta is a large arboreal fur-covered mammal, often compared with the Terran gorilla. It does grow to about the same size, but differs in many significant ways. Not least is the fact that the Kuta has a vivid orange colouring that allows it to camouflage itself amongst its native flora. There is little difference between the males and females, at least to most people, although those that have studied them are able at a glance to spot the significant differences. Males have a slightly extended snout and ears placed slightly further back on their heads than the females. The Kuta live in small family groups. They display variable dominance hierarchy, with individuals rising and falling from their alpha position and even returning back to the alpha position. This status is not fought for, but seems to happen by mutual consent. They do not appear to have any extensive verbal language, and their vocal range is rather restricted, it consisting of just a number of grunts and somewhat musical calls. The forests of their homeworld are rather strange, with trees that do not have vertical trunks, but rather form huge arches. This terrain seems responsible for the coot's double-elbowed arms. These extra elbows allow their arms to stretch around these wide tree trunks and gives them an amazing agility in this terrain. Although a predominantly peaceful creature, they are tough, strong and formidable when angered. Chiala Mortstick is the accepted expert on the animal and has made a number of vids about them. Her research work has shown that they raise their children in a crash system with communal responsibility and that they share food sources a most unusual behaviour. Unfortunately, there have been incidents of the Kuta attacking humans. Unfortunate for the individuals that were attacked, and for the Kuta in general. Chiala has been very outspoken against the reprisal hunts that have been launched against the Kuta, which she says are going far beyond the reasonable. It does appear that the attacks have always taken place when colonists have walked into the clearings that the Kuta are using as meeting places, and surprise the Kuta community while sleeping or possibly feeding. There is no incident of an attack outside of this situation. However, the punitive hunting expeditions launched by the colonists have travelled deep into the forests and denuded those nearby forests entirely of their Kuta inhabitants. Giala has recently made application to the Imperial Scouting Service to classify the Kuta as an intelligent and protected race as similar calls to the local authorities have fallen on deaf ears. Have you got that feed ready? Yep, feeding it through now. Got it, thanks. That net feed's got a weird name. What is it? Whale song. The captain likes whale song? This is On The Net, where I tell you about some goodie that I found on the interwebby tubes. Today I'm going to point you at ancientfarfuture.blogspot.co.uk and you'll not regret visiting that site. It's a veritable mine of articles and resources for the classic game. From reading the latest post, I see that the author has been into Traveller since 1997 and that's a dedication you have to appreciate. 
The blog itself has been running for a couple of years, but in that time, the amount of content has blossomed. There's enough clever, well-written and insightful content here to make sure that you never have to listen to this show again. Rules discussions, alternatives, scenarios, worlds, patrons, rules insights, theories, proposals, backgrounds, world systems, characters, aliens, and even a little bit of NASA news. This is everything you could want from a traveller blog, and I suggest you check it out. The address is, once again, ancientfarfuture.blogspot.co.uk. So I'm here. Why don't you tell me why you're cold? There's spacer in the corner booth. Don't stare at him. I see him. Who is he? It's the guy on the news vids. Which news vids? The thousands of channels. Crookwatch. This is the People of Interest segment, where I tell you about one of the people who have gained some notoriety in or around the Imperium. Jonathan Evans is a name of villainy and is held in despite across the Imperium. For a time, his surname Evans became a synonym for destroying a world. People would say Evans the world, meaning to obliterate the entire surface. As Jonathan Evans did destroy a world, killing everybody on the surface, it was a justified approbation. Jonathan's story starts with where he worked in the outer orbit of the Dintian system, searching the distant orbiting rocks for minerals. The ship had a crew of five and was operating on a 14-month mission contract. In that time, they were scheduled to visit and catalogue over 200 large asteroids. The mission started according to plan, and the ship's computer log indicates that the first couple of months of investigating rocks went according to that plan. After that, however, the log entries became sporadic and nonsensical before eventually stopping altogether. We know little of the events that were taking place on the ship, but there are a number of clues. The other members of the crew were all found dead. Their bodies had been piled into a single stateroom and all had multiple stab wounds. Interestingly, they also found evidence that the name Claire had been written in blood across many of the ship's walls and then subsequently washed off. These facts, however, were only discovered months after Jonathan's despicable crime. It was around the time that the logs became erratic that Jonathan put into action the first stages of his crime. Quite apart from the murder of the crew, it seems that Jonathan started now some complex orbital calculations that ran for weeks. This computational time has been confirmed in the ship's logs and then started the crime proper. Using the ship's tow cables, Jonathan started pulling a series of asteroids into new, carefully calculated orbits. Over the following months, he must have worked furiously, because within that time frame, he set thousands of rocks, trickling down the gravity well towards the system's inhabited planet. As you might expect, the rocks were spotted, and plans to intercept them were put into action. The world eventually came together when they realised how many there were, and they formed a concerted effort. Both private and local naval fleets were put into the defensive action. It was while they were fighting this initial bombardment that they spotted an entire second wave following the first. The second wave was larger than the first. A call for help was sent to the neighbouring systems, even though it was thought that they would arrive too late. The fleet set against this first wave of rocks suffered significant attrition. Evacuation plans were put into effect, 
and then the third wave of rocks coming from another unseen trajectory caught everyone off guard. The rocks impacted on the surface of the planet, thousands of them, and they kept coming until the planet was depopulated. Many thousands escaped the devastation in the evacuation, but had little or nothing to return to. Subsequent investigation by the Imperial Navy discovered the ship that had caused the planetary devastation and its dead crew. Mr Evans was not on board, having escaped months before in the ship's lifeboat, which itself has never been found. Thanks for the trade, Tuchel. It was a pleasure doing business with you. So long, sucker. And so we've reached the end game. I'd like to take the opportunity to tell you that I've recently published a traveller scenario, and here's the blurb. The experiment is a traveller one-shot scenario for one to five players, designed to be played in a single session where the PCs find themselves in a horror survival situation. Convinced that they were about to start a new life on a new world, as part of the first wave of workers, they instead wake up in an underground facility on an operating table. With the lights failing, water pouring down the walls and strange, dangerous creatures coming up from below, this was not what they expected. It's available as PDF from Drive-Thru RPG, as an ebook on the Kindle store, and in printed form via lulu.com. Just search for The Experiments. Once again, and as usual, if you have any thoughts, suggestions, questions or segment items, please feel free to send them in to me at BehindTheClaw at Outlook.com. This podcast is released on an attribution, non-commercial, no-derivatives license. Its home on the web is at BehindTheClaw.blogspot.co.uk. Music by Kevin MacLeod of Incompetech.com. I'm your host, Felbrick Napoleon Herriot. Thanks for listening. Prepare for jump.